Jonah chapter 3 as we make our way through this uh, short little book of uh, 48 verses. We come to uh, the third chapter. I'd like to read uh, uh, verses 1 through 10 for us. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, nor herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Where the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to his faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I'm not proud to admit it, but oftentimes I get behind the wheel having no idea how to get to my destination. And so what I do is I plug in the address into my Maps app, and I let Siri tell me how to get there. But that doesn't often work out very well. Sometimes I miss a turn or miss an exit, in which case Siri needs to do some redirecting. But you know you've really gotten off course when Siri tells you to make a U-turn. Seems like that happens far too often. But sometimes I think that's, or that's a good analogy for life. Sometimes we get a little too far off course and we have to make a U-turn. That is, we have to make a 180 degree turn to go in the complete opposite direction from where our life is headed. And the biblical term we use for that is called repentance. Repentance means to turn around to go in one direction and then to turn completely around and go in the opposite direction in your life. In our passage today, we see several turns, several changes in action. We see Jonah changing his behavior. We see the Ninevites repenting. And finally, we see God turning from the disaster he said he would bring upon them. Well, as we consider our passage today, you'll recall that the story of Jonah begins with him commissioning his prophet, Jonah, to go and cry out against the city of Nineveh. 
but of course, he had no desire to do such a thing. Nineveh, which is near modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq, was one of the great cities of the Assyrian Empire. And they, up until very recently in, in Israelite history, in Jonah's time, were the brutal oppressors of the Israelites. They were renowned for their ruthless and brutal military tactics. So Jonah wanted no part in warning them of the imminent destruction that was coming upon them. So what did he do? Well, he went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He went down to Joppa, got in a boat, went out to sea to flee to Tarshish. Well, of course, we know the story that God had something different in mind. He sent a storm, which ultimately sent Jonah into the sea, where Jonah was able to spend three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And we saw last week how that fish vomited Jonah onto dry ground and brought him back to the place from whence he came. In other words, Jonah gets a do-over. And that's what we see in our passage today, where we see that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again the second time. And notice that the call that God gives to Jonah is identical in wording to the call that we read at the beginning of the book. He says, get up and go and cry out, call out against Nineveh. You see, God is gracious and patient with his wayward prophet, not only in saving him from drowning, a death that he deserved in rebellion against his God, but also in commissioning him again, giving him a second chance to perform the command that he gives him. I said it's identical wording up get up, go, and call out against Nineveh. And yet something is new in verse 2, where he says, tell them the message that I tell you. This is added. It seems uh, originally the Lord just says, go call out. But now it's as if the Lord is closely monitoring Jonah's speech. In other words, he doesn't get any uh, prophetic license to be able to elaborate on the message. You know, he has a very simple message that the Lord says, I want you to tell them this message. Originally, when God called Jonah, we read that he arose and fled in the opposite direction. And yet now we read what we should, or we are expected to read, that, no, that Jonah arose and went. Now we see that he is obedient to the divine command. It's even added according to the word of the Lord. This is what we typically expect. When the Lord tells people to do something, they listen. And now Jonah, having been given a second chance obeys and goes to Nineveh. Now, we might pause and ask at this point, why the change of heart? Well, we would like to think that Jonah learned his lesson, that he realized that it's better to obey the Lord than to rebel against him, and that he's had a real solid change of heart, and he sincerely wants to obey the Lord and go off and preach to the Ninevites. Well, that's a possibility, but unlikely. Maybe he's realized that it's utterly futile to resist the will of the Lord. He tried doing it the first time, and that didn't work out so well. And he's just realized that there's no way he can get out of it. And so begrudgingly, he goes to Nineveh. Well, we don't know. We're not told what's in his mind or in his heart at this point. But there's a third possibility. There's a third possibility in his obedience to the Lord going to Nineveh, and it's this that he held out a slim chance that the Ninevites might not repent and that the destruction he said would come upon them would in fact come. 
And I would suggest to you that this is probably his main motivation in going to Nineveh, because we see that after he preaches to the Ninevites, what does he do? He goes out of the city, and he sits down, and he waits to see what happens. In other words, he's hoping that they don't repent, and that the destruction comes, and that he gets a front row seat. That's probably what motivated Jonah most to obey the Lord and go off to Nineveh. Well, as I said, this book is a short book. It omits a lot, including the description of Jonah's journey to the city of Nineveh, which would have taken several weeks to go from uh, uh, Palestine, modern-day Israel, to what is now modern-day northern Iraq. We're also told once again about this city, Nineveh. We're told once again that it's a great city. It's a big city. It's an important city. Uh, it's trans- or the ESV says it's an exceedingly great city. Literally, it is great to the gods or great to God, depending on how you translate the Hebrew. Now, Nineveh's religious importance in the Assyrian religion doesn't really fit in the context. So to translate this, that it's great to the gods, referring to the Assyrian gods, doesn't really make sense. But what the text is probably saying when it's speaking of the immense size and importance of this city is that it's important even to God himself. You see, God's universal reign is emphasized both in Old and New Testament. He's not just the God of the Hebrews, but he's the God of all the earth. He's the God of heaven. And this city of Nineveh is important to him. It's come to his attention, and he wants his prophet to deal with this city. Well, we're once again... Uh, impressed with the size of the city of Nineveh, where we are told that it is a three days journey. Uh, This is hard to square with what we know about the uh, size of the ancient city of Nineveh. We've been able to uh, dig up the the walls and, and we have a rough estimate of how large the city was at this time. And the diameter of the city walls was roughly three miles wide, hardly a three days journey. Uh, And so perhaps a better way to translate this, and it's the added uh, the e- the English translators added the words in breadth. Probably a better way to translate and understand what it's what's being said here is that the city of Nineveh required a three day visit. We often say this about important big cities. Say you're going to New York City, and you tell someone, "Well, I'm only going to be there one day." And you say, "Oh, there's no way. You're not going to be able to get all the uh, that you need to do in New York City in just one day. It's a three-day visit. You need at least three days to get there, one day to do your activities, and another day to, uh, to uh, your departure. That's probably what's being communicated here when it speaks of the, of the immense size and importance of the city of Nineveh. But as we'll see, the prophet Jonah didn't need three days for his visit. For on the very first day, of his visit, he began crying out to the citizens, preaching the message that God told him to preach. And we see that message being summarized this way. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It is a message of certain and imminent judgment. This word overthrown reminds us of what we read of in Genesis chapter 19 with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read that those cities were overthrown, being completely and utterly wiped out. So Jonah is predicting certain and imminent judgment, and yet there's a timeline. Forty days. 
40 days is a relative time. It's a relatively short amount of time for the destruction of a city, and yet it seems like it's a sufficient amount of time for some self-reflection, for the Ninevites to think about what's going to happen in a little over a month. Now, presumably, this is just a summary of Jonah's message. Uh, It's unlikely that that's all he said. Surely there was more that he was able to elaborate on. And yet, it's clearly a message of doom and gloom. As far as we can tell, there is no good news in this message that Jonah delivers to the Ninevites. No gospel, we might say, in our modern parlance. He's just telling them that they're going to get destroyed, which makes their response all the more surprising. We read in verse 5 that they believed God. You see, the response on the part of the Ninevites is actually even worse than Jonah feared. Remember, he was holding out that slim chance that they wouldn't repent, that they would laugh at him, that they would dismiss him, and that he'd say, hey, I did my job, my hands are clean, you guys get destroyed, I'm going to get some popcorn and watch from the front row. No, we see the response of the Ninevites was Jonah's worst nightmare. Instead of ridiculing and disregarding this strange foreign prophet, they believed his message and took it to heart. Now, we might ponder at this point, is this plausible? Is it real, is it, are we really supposed to believe that uh, a foreign prophet could march into this great city of Nineveh, preach a message of doom and gloom, and, and all of a sudden everyone has a change of heart? Well, from what we know about the Assyrian Empire during the 8th century, this is when the prophet Jonah lived, there was actually some circumstances and sets of events that may have prepared the Ninevites to receive this message in the way they did. We know that during that time in the 8th century that the Assyrian Empire had suffered military defeat. They were no longer the power, the powerful nation that they once were. We know that they had suffered a multi-year famine, that there were riots, there was even a significant earthquake, and we know that there was an eclipse during that time, which the Assyrians were very superstitious about, and they always, they, they would be able, whenever there was an eclipse, they thought that something really bad was going to happen. Well, we don't know if any of these were particularly contributing factors, but all added together, we can see how they would contribute to their ready acceptance of this message of doom and gloom. This isn't coming out of left field. This is something that they had been feeling and expecting, and now Jonah the prophet confirms it. Well, of course, all of these things came from the hand of God. All of these things, and including, and most especially, the actual repentance that they undergo is a work of the sovereign hand of God. And so we see a tangible sign of their repentance. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. Now, boys and girls, sackcloth is something similar to burlap. If you've ever seen a burlap sack, uh, if you've ever been in a a potato sack race, right? The the material, it's uncomfortable. When it touches your skin, it it itches. And it's, uh, it's, it is, uh, it's a terrible thing to have in close contact your skin. This is what they would do to show their repentance, to show that they're really sorry for their sins. They afflict themselves by going without food 
and foregoing the ordinary comforts of life. And this is true of the greatest to the least of them. The whole population, even the animals, as we see in verses 7 and 8, are involved in this national mourning over their sin. And we read that word even reached the king. Literally, it struck the king. We see that even the king is cut to the heart and takes appropriate action. We read specifically about him that he arises from his throne He removes his robes, the symbol of his authority, the the symbol of his glory and splendor. He sets all that aside, and he puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes to show his remorse. And together with his nobles, he issues a decree for universal fasting and mourning and crying out to God for mercy. Now, the fact that even the animals are included in this fast may strike us as modern readers as somewhat odd. And yet this is very consistent with the customs of the day. There's actually other extant documents where kings call upon, Assyrian kings call upon their people to fast and mourn uh, for a particular event. And guess what? They call their animals to do the same thing. And so this is very fitting with the historical records we have. But it's also important to note that although animals don't bear any guilt, they, they, too, would be the casualties of the city's destruction, which the Lord himself points out in the very last verse of this book. If you look there in chapter 4, verse 11, he's talking to Jonah about why he should spare the city of Nineveh, and he speaks of the much cattle that's there. God would like to avoid the senseless slaughter of cattle. And so it's very fitting that they, too, are involved in this public mourning and public repentance on the, on, on the part of the Ninevites. We see in the decree in verse 8 that the king calls everyone individually to repent. He says, let everyone turn or repent from your evil ways. This is an important thing to, to know about repentance. You can't just do it corporately. You can't just do it as a group unless everyone individually is repenting. That's why we confess in the Westminster Confession that men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly as each and every one of us must stand before the judgment seat of God. And we are called to account for each and every one of our particular sins, and that's why it's important for us not to just say, oh yeah, we all we, we confessed as a group, it's fine. No, we are called to individually repent of our sins, and we see the king of Nineveh commanding just that. Well, what is it that they are to repent of? Well, generally, they ought to turn from their evil ways, but particularly the, the one egregious sin, sin that's being singled out is the sin of violence. The Hebrew word here is hamas. This is what characterized, this is the notoriety of the Assyrians. They were known for their violence, for their cruel and wicked oppression, their brutality in warfare. When the king says you need to turn, you need to repent, you need to disavow such behavior. Well, to what end? Well, we see that in verse 9 where he asks the question, Who knows? Who knows? It's interesting that the king doesn't presume upon God 
He doesn't say, hey, let's repent because we know for sure that God will forgive us. He had no such promise. No, he's simply hoping. It's similar to the way that the ship captain, um, when, during the storm, when he wakes up Jonah and he says, call out to your God, perhaps he'll listen to us. There's no presumption here. They're not assuming that they deserve it. There's no what we might call cheap grace. That is, that it's our duty to sin and it's God's duty to forgive. That as long as we confess our sins, that God is somehow bound to forgive us. No, that's not the case. God forgives us freely, but willingly, not because he has to. Recognizing the severity of their sins and acknowledging that they, that they deserve the judgment that's coming to them. The Ninevites throw themselves on the mercy of God, the judge of all the earth, hoping to avert destruction. Well, at this point, I think we can pause and ask, what's going on here? With the Ninevites? What's really going on in their heart? Are we to believe that the Ninevites were granted saving faith in the Lord? Did the whole city turn uh, from their uh, worship of false gods and turn to be true and faithful worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel? Well, not necessarily. While they believe Jonah's message and turn from their evil ways, we do not read of them then turning in faith to the Lord. And see, that's the important thing, is that repentance in and of itself is not sufficient. In order to turn away from your sins, you must turn to something else. And so that's why we often speak of repentance and faith. You turn from your wicked ways, but then you turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or here in the Old Testament, turn in faith to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's interesting that throughout this chapter, you only see the general title of God being used here. You do not see the covenant name of Yahweh, the name of God, the name that God revealed to the Israelites, like you do back in chapter one. Remember those Gentile sailors who call out to the Lord? They call out to Yahweh. And there we have good reason to believe that they actually had faith in the God of Israel as as we read that they then went and offered sacrifices to him and vowed vows in the name of the Lord. But here we only see a general turning away from sin and what we might call a fear of God. A fear of God versus a fear of the Lord, a fear of Yahweh. A fear of God is basically having a basic sense of right and wrong. And here the Assyrians are, who who were so far off track, who were so ruthless and brutal in in, in their actions, were put back on track with this national repentance. They had a basic sense of right and wrong, a fear of God. Now contrast that with what Scripture calls the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, which speaks of a covenantal relationship which speaks of having faith in the Lord and ultimately receiving the benefit of the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting that while the the Lord relents from the disaster, we never read of him forgiving the Assyrians, only granting them a temporary reprieve. And ultimately, historically, that's what happened. The Assyrian Empire ultimately did fall, and the Lord brought upon them the judgment they deserved. But nonetheless, 
it would be hard to imagine a description of a more thoroughgoing and drastic change on the part of a people that we read than, than what we read of here in Jonah chapter 3. Far surpassing anything that we read of the Israelites doing in the Old Testament. Never do we read of the Israelites repenting on such a level that the Ninevites did. Well, we saw the prophet Jonah have a change of heart, or at least obey the Lord. We saw the Ninevites have a drastic uh, repentance and mourning for their sin. And finally, we come to the third change in our passage today in verse 10, the change on the part of God. We read that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented from the disaster. Now, you theologically-minded People might say, well, wait a minute. I thought the Lord doesn't change. I thought he was immutable, that he's he's not a man that he should repent or the son of man that he should change his mind. How are we to make sense of this language of the Lord relenting? Well, it's important to note that God is immutable, that he does not change in his infinite perfection, but that does not mean He cannot act in meaningful and dynamic ways with mankind. We see here in Jonah chapter 3 exactly what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 18, where the Lord says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. There's a promise of the Lord, not just to the Israelites. They were the primary audience, but the Lord says, any nation, if I say I'm going to destroy it, if they turn from their ways, the Lord says, I will relent. Now, this does not mean that God changes his mind or alters his eternal decree. We know that the Ninevites' repentance was part of God's plan all along. That's why he sent the prophet Jonah in the first place. And that's why Jonah, after the fact, says, that's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew what you had up your sleeve, God. I knew you would forgive them. I knew you would relent from the disaster if they repented. And so we ought not to assume that God's changing here uh, or relenting from the disaster, which is ultimately language that we can understand. God speaking to us in baby talk, as it were. That does not negate the sovereignty of God. It's interesting, even in that Jeremiah 18 passage that I just read for you, that's the same exact passage where God likens himself to a potter and us to the clay. And he says, am I not like a potter and you're like the clay and I can do whatever I want with you? And so it is here, he calls upon us to repent and promises that he is ever ready to receive us in grace if we repent and turn to Christ. Now, as far as Jonah's message, which God told him to preach, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, implied in that warning was that they were given a chance to repent. Even though Jonah may not have gone right out and said, but if you repent, the Lord will relent from his disaster. No, even the fact that God gave them a warning in and of itself is a chance to repent. And so divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. We're not stones. We're image bearers of God. 
And we have a real responsibility to respond to the revealed will of the Lord that he has so clearly revealed to us in Scripture, that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that all should repent and turn to him, that his, the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, which he shows to all mankind, is meant to lead to repentance. And he uses these sincere and heartfelt calls to turn from our wicked ways to sovereignly draw his people to himself. Well, as we conclude this passage today, I think it's important for us to consider how this passage ought to be applied to us. Keep in mind, this wasn't written for the Ninevites, but this is written for the people of God throughout the ages. So we might consider how the original audience should have received this message of the Ninevites repenting. Well, clearly, to Jonah's original audience, the sincere and heartfelt response of the Ninevites, who when only one prophet comes and and announces imminent destruction, and they repent, this should have shamed the Israelites, who were given countless prophets, who were warned over and over again of imminent destruction, and yet never once did they repent on such a level that we see the Ninevites doing. It should have shamed them on a national level. But as we fast forward to the fullness of the revelation of God, we understand this principle that to whom much is given, much is expected. For our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth and he was confronted with the religious leaders who refused to repent of their sins, who refused to believe in him, and demanded that he perform a sign at their command. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He was speaking about himself. He was the greater than Jonah. And if the Ninevites repented at a message of doom and gloom with a half-hearted prophet, How much more ought we to repent as the eternal Son of God has taken flesh? The greater than Jonah has come and calls us to repent and turn to him. For those of us living in the light of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, who have been given the fullness of the revelation of God through his Son, we have no choice. We must repent and believe. And that message that is being proclaimed is even greater than the message that God gave to Jonah. We have the message of reconciliation. Paul characterizes that message in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed the greater than Jonah. You did not begrudgingly, but willingly come in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh so that we might receive life and forgiveness. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us all faith and repentance in you. May we turn from our evil and wicked ways and evermore follow after you into eternal life. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.